I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 8 while we're doing a little cleanup work here on the platform. Acts chapter 8. I'm a little worried about something this morning. While I was sitting there for a song or two, it's still, you hear the bugs chirping, hear roosters crowing, and it just seems like a lazy, comfy day that you need a cup of coffee or a, uh, just a, a, a spot of tea uh, there in your hand. But we are, we're glad to be here, but it does seem a little bit just, just sleepy and comfy. So occasionally, I know this would be a little difficult, while I'm doing a monologue, which is what preaching is, if, if a couple of you could just smile to let me know you're still with me, you're still there, it's still tracking, that would help me. I know I shouldn't need that kind of self-assurance, but at any rate, I'm going to talk about a great chapter today, Acts chapter 8. There are some fantastic things that are going on in this chapter. I've titled this message, The Gospel to Outsiders, because there are a couple of people in this chapter way outside of the realm of the normal Jewish crowd we'd come to expect in the Gospels themselves. I'd like to read a significant part of Acts chapter 8, actually the first part of Acts chapter 8, to get the context of what's going on here. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 says, And Saul approved of his, that is Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And I would note, if you have a, a paper Bible or you have some way to highlight this next three, these next three words, except the apostles. So everybody's being scattered except the apostles. And I want you to note, there are two significant cities or regions mentioned here, Judea and Samaria, which the last time we heard about those was in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. So the Holy Spirit in inspiring Luke to write this is making a direct connection that God's plan is being furthered and he's furthering his plan through the suffering of his people and the scattering of those people. This looks like the end of the church. I mean, this looks like it's going to be stamped out, but God is specifically saying that this is advancing the church. Now, a whole preaching point could be just on that one thing. That the more you try to push back God's plan, you can't do it. Because God has a plan and it will be fulfilled. Now let's move on. Verse 2, it says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And I just want to point out, I'm not going to stop like I'm doing here the first couple verses. But the degradation and the humiliation of Stephen was immense. Because after he was stoned, his body was left there. It would have been a shame for anybody to approach that body, to retrieve that body. And yet we have here that there were people who came and they unpiled those rocks and they retrieved that broken, bloody body because Christians valued the body. They valued the life. 
And then in verse 3, we have a return of this person that we were introduced to at the end of chapter 7. Saul now takes a more prominent role. He is now ravaging the church. Could you imagine this? He's entering house after house. I kind of conjure up in my mind German Nazi soldiers going from house to house to discover Jewish people. Saul is doing, or Saul is doing this and he's, he's finding people of a particular religious persuasion. And he's dragging them off, men and women, and committing them to, them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now let's launch into this next story. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid full attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. It's just so interesting what's being said about this guy. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. What is to follow is not a repeatable event. This is a one-time event that as the gospel went out from the epicenter in Jerusalem, there were affirmations needed to assure the people that this was the genuine gospel. So this is not something that we would repeat today, asking for the Spirit to fall upon us. It did so to authenticate that the message that was in Jerusalem is now the same message that's in Samaria. And it says that, Verse 16, for he had not fallen on any of them, that's the Spirit, for they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit, that the Spirit was given through the laying on apostles' hands, he offered them money. And we're going to stop right there because that's a significant place to stop. This morning, I want to talk about three aspects of gospel advance because this is there is significant gospel advance going out in this chapter i want to look in verses one through eight that the gospel is advanced as a grassroots movement in verses nine through 25 i want us to see that gospel in advance included false conversions And then thirdly, at the end of the chapter, we did not read, we'll highlight when we get there, gospel advance reaches across the deepest divides. 
This was a grassroots movement. It's significant, and the text points that out. I want to concentrate, though, first on the zeal of Saul, because there are words that are being used about Saul that are significant words. In chapter 7, he was just watching the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen. Now it's ramped up a little bit. He is a major player. It says that he ravages the church. The word ravages there is a word, and you can picture this if you've watched National Geographic or Animal Channels. This is the word that's used of when a predator is taking the flesh off of an animal and ripping the flesh off of that animal. That's what Saul is doing to the church. It's that painful. It's that messy. He's ravaging God's people. This scene was imprinted on his mind to where he recalls this later in Acts chapter 22, where he says, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Saul never forgot what happened here. Why did Saul feel like he needed to do this? I know it's a recorded fact, but let's ask the question. Why did he feel like he needed to do this? Why did he respond so ferociously against God's people? Why didn't Saul take the advice of Gamaliel at the end of chapter 5? Remember Gamaliel's advice? Leave these guys alone. If this thing is not of God, it's going to fizzle out. He tried to offer kind of a third way solution instead of persecuting them. Why didn't Saul feel like he could do that? Because the sermon that Stephen preached... Saul got the distinct impression that what he believed was not going to fit what Stephen said. Saul clearly got the exclusivity of Christianity, that this was not just another religion that spoke about a way to God, but that this was an enemy religion because it was so exclusive. And so because of this, entering house After house, he drags off men and women and commits them to prison. Now, I wanted to stop on that because one of the questions in our discussion guide today for community groups, or if you use that discussion guide, I would encourage you, even if you're not in a community group, that you use that discussion guide. Go through that, sink yourself deeper in the text. What is it we're so scared of with persecution? And I'm not asking that because I'm not scared. I'm just saying, what is it about persecution we're so afraid of? I do think that it's the physical part of it. It's, the, it's all of the terrors that go along with that. And we can just imagine those things. We've never been a part of it, most of us. But they're in it. I would think to myself, that's all they could talk, all they could talk about and think about. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? He got ripped out of his house. He got dragged away before his children. And yet, folks, what I want to point out in this text, in verse 4, is it says they were scattered and they were preoccupied with something else and it wasn't the persecution. This can be nothing other than the Spirit of God enabling them to do something they could not do in their own strength. It says they were scattered and they went everywhere and they went about preaching the Word. 
The word scattered is a repeated word in this text because in verse 1, it says they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then in verse 4, it says they were scattered and they went about preaching the word. Let's talk about these scattered preachers. Who were the scattered preachers? Here you have this message that is so volatile and so important that a man is ravaging the church and now that man is dead. What's going to happen to the message? Well, the apostles know what the message is, but they're not the ones preaching the message when all of these people are scattered. These people are everyone and anyone who was willing to be used and open their mouth to speak about Christ. It was a grassroots movement. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. But this message is not going to be just entrusted to qualified individuals. This message is now not just going to rest with people who had walked with Jesus. This message was available to anybody who was willing to open their mouth and talk about Jesus Christ. That is significant. And the word that's used here, preaching, it says they went everywhere. Preaching is the word that's used for proclaiming the gospel. They're doing the same thing that the apostles were doing. They're doing the same thing that Jesus told the disciples to do. And they're average, everyday people. These people did not do what was right in their own eyes. They didn't just speak anything they desired to speak because it says in verse 14, Peter and John were sent down to Samaria to check out what was going on. So there was quality control going on. And you know what they found? They found that the message in Samaria was the same message that was preached in Jerusalem. Now, were were they doing it as well as the apostles? Probably not. Probably wasn't as smooth. Probably didn't have the same different emphasis. But it was the same core components. So this message is not just going to be blessed on the feet of certain blessed individuals. It's going to be blessed on the feet of average people who had met Jesus Christ and were willing to open their mouths. This is an amazing thing. That this movement was not organized by the apostles. The apostles didn't get the whole church together, and they could do that. We saw that in chapter 6. They didn't get the whole church together and kind of draw out a scenario. I'm going to send you people. You're going to go this way. You're going to go this way. It's literally, they got squashed. They scattered. And they preached Jesus. And because they had the Spirit, God enabled that message to be effective. Do you know this is still the case today? Still the case today. This this continues to be the case today. Do you know why? It's not because there are a whole lot more qualified people today. It's because the same spirit who lived within these Christians lives within these Christians. And these Christians have the message of Jesus, just like those Christians had the message of Jesus. And so when we are scattered, we are to speak. You know, when we're together, we're more passive, are we not? We're passive right now. I'm not saying that as a negative, but we're listening. I mean, you're not witnessing to other people. You're not sharing the gospel with other people. We're together. And it's when people are scattered 
So what this means is that no one, no one is going to do a better job of speaking to your neighbors than you are. You say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know as much. Do you know about Christ? Do you know the gospel? Then you know enough. No one is going to do a better job with your co-workers that you have relationship with than you are. Because you are a Christian. You have the Spirit of God living within you. And this, this Christianity is a grassroots movement. The glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ advances through the voices of regular people. That's what's going on there and here today. As the gospel advanced, though, something happens that is quite discouraging but is real. There are false conversions. This man Philip goes out and he proclaims to them Christ is what the text says. He's not giving some sort of system. He's proclaiming to them Christ. He had a substantive teaching ministry and in verse 6, the end of verse 6, it says... They heard what he said, and they saw what he did. I want to spend just a moment on that, because I I think it, it, it merits us spending just a moment on that. He cast out demons, and he healed paralyzed and lame people. And you and I might think to ourselves, well, if I could do that, man, I could get a crowd too. But remember this, the power is not in the drama going on. The power is in the message. The power is in the Spirit of God empowering the person willing to open their mouth. That's the power. So so what's going on here is authenticating the message, but it's not necessary to the message. But I want to point out that when they saw what he did and heard what he said, those two things combined... That Philip was meeting the spiritual needs of people and he was also meeting the physical needs of people. When that happened in verse 8, there was much joy in the city. I think we can get the impression that doing a miracle is like a street performer. You know, these guys on the street who do amazing things and people kind of gather around. It's like, you know, if, if we have that ability, boy, I can gather a crowd and I can preach the gospel. The power is not in the street performing, though. The power is in the message. The power is not in the sensational. The power is in the death and resurrection of Christ. That's where the power is. So what is it about this when it says they heard what he said and they saw what he did that we're spending time on? When we have the opportunity... It matters certainly what we say, but I also think it matters as a church what we do. That it's not just saying certain things, but it's works that accompany that and come alongside that that enable people in our city, in our circumference, in our world to have joy because we care about the message preached, but also their needs as well. What I'm saying is this, that we should care about people's spiritual needs, but we should also care about their physical needs. When Jesus went about, he was not just saying things, he was doing things. When Philip went out, he was not just saying things, he was doing things. We as a church should not have just the right message, though that is critical to have the right message. 
But we should also have the right works that go along with that to demonstrate we are caring people in our community. So you can pray this for your coworker. God used me to meet the needs of my neighbors and my coworkers and give me an opportunity to present Christ. Give me an opportunity to present Christ. Now, I want to talk about Simon and Simon's request. Simon's a powerful guy. All you had to do was ask him and he would tell you. He said that. He said, I'm somebody great. <laughs> That's what he said. It's what the text says. And the people attested to that. They said, this man is the great power of God. So they were attributing what Simon did to God himself. Simon hears Philip preach. He believes the message we are led to believe here. And he is baptized, which would have carried significant weight. He's identifying with God's people. This is no small thing. But the text goes on and it says that he sees the miracles and he sees the attention that that draws. And then he sees the Spirit coming and he offers to pay for that. And we don't know how long this took. I don't think it was one day that he heard the message, he was baptized, and then he offers money because I think he traveled with Philip and he saw things happening. And over time, it became apparent that Simon's true motivation was not to place dependence upon Christ, but it was the attention deficit that he was having because the attention was away from him and it was on other things. So his true heart motive was being revealed. And here's what Peter said to him in verse 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain, and here's the critical phrase, the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. In verse 23, uh, Peter uh, says that he's bitter. He's caught in the gall of bitterness. That as they observed his life, there were things that he said that indicated he was bitter. The attention was not coming to him. And it started to come out that the true heart's motivation wasn't to cherish Christ, but it was to get something, to get himself something. What does this mean? This means that you can come to Christianity. You can even be baptized. You can even join a church. You can even serve because he was attached to Philip and he was probably serving in that healing, those healings and doing things for people. You can do all of those things But your true heart's motivation is not to cherish Christ and to trust Christ. It's something else. Let me put it plainly. You can say you're a Christian. You can say you were baptized. You can say you were a member of your church. You can say you were a deacon. You can say you were an important position in the church. You can be a pastor in the church and not be a genuine believer. This text is teaching us That this is possible. Just because you say words or do actions doesn't mean there's heart transformation. What should we conclude from this? A couple things. Number one, we should be careful who we affirm to be Christians. 
Now here's what we do at our church. We have, if people are interested in becoming members of Bethel Baptist Church, we have a Discover Bethel class. We do that kind of in a, in a uh, uh, one-shot fashion these days. And we go through a number of things, but the most important thing we talk about is if you understand the gospel. What is the gospel? What does that actually mean? You don't have to explain it like a theologian, but there ought to be some understanding of the gospel. And then secondly, are you a Christian? And could you describe that? How Could you explain that? So when we have a vote, like we did last Sunday, for four people to invite them to become members of our church, we're not saying, oh, we'd really like these people, they're talented, they can help our church, or we really like these people, they seem like fine individuals, and they're upstanding folks. What we are voting on is to the best of our knowledge, do we believe these are Christians? The worst thing we can do is give someone the assurance they're a Christian when they're not. But you know, even our best ability to discern that cannot unzip the chest and get inside of the heart and see the true heart's motivation, that will come in time. And that will be revealed. So the second thing is we should look for in each other, all of us, not just the pastor to you, but you to the pastor and everybody else. We should look for fruit and evidences of faith. Do we even know how to determine if there's Christian fruit coming out of a life? We ought to give people time. We ought not to make quick snap judgments. People do things wrong. We can't on the first misstep say, well, I don't think that person is a Christian. But we ought to look for fruit and evidences of faith Because what a horrible thing it would be that we have a church and that we have church membership and that we have places of service and there are people in our midst who are not Christians, but we're affirming them because we don't want to give them any bad news. We don't want to question that. But there are people in churches all across the United States who have their names on membership rolls for 50 and 60 years, who claim to be pillars of the church, who have not demonstrated any evidences of genuine conversion. And nobody wants to determine that. What a sad thing that is. And yet here we have in the first century, as the gospel is shooting out in miraculous ways, in incredible ways, and there's great joy in the city that there are false conversions. We may think to ourselves... Well, maybe Simon misunderstood. Maybe we're being a little too hard on him. Look at what he says in verse 24. After they say what they do to him, he says, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. I mean, you heard what Peter said. I mean, that's pretty steep. I mean, it'd be pretty scary. But genuine conversion brings a man to the cross to repent of sin and trust Christ, what this guy wants them to do is to go to their God so that he doesn't get struck by lightning. This man does not have a converted heart. Let me ask a question. Do you? Do you? It would be a sad thing to sit through services every week and to be claiming to be a Christian because you made a decision when you were nine And when you ask about that, somebody said, well, it's recorded in your Bible. That's when you became a Christian. But there's no fruit. 
How does a person become a Christian? They repent of their sin. They trust Christ as their Savior. It's not because you married a Christian. It's not because you were born into a Christian home. It's not because you go to a Christian school. It's not because you live by the golden rule. We attempt in every sermon we have here to preach the gospel, not because we think that we have a ton of unconverted unconverted people in front of us, though there are some in every crowd. We want them to hear the gospel. We want people to see that the gospel is emerging all over the scriptures. Because God wants you to know Christ. God wants you to know genuine conversion. Are you a Christian? You say, man, it's hard to back down now. I've been saying I was a Christian for years, but I've questioned that in my heart, and I haven't seen fruit, and there's no power to resist sin. There's no struggle against sin. There's not Christian fruits as I see in the Scriptures. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe maybe today is the day to trust Christ. Parents, I know that it the feeling, because I am a parent of, we want our children to be Christians. We want our children to do well. And there is that embarrassment. Well, what if I haven't done it right? And what if, what, if, what if I've gone all this time and my kids are not Christians? Will people think something poorly of me? Would it not be worth it to sit down and to talk with one of those children about whether they genuinely are a Christian as opposed to being concerned about our image and that person dies in a Christless eternity. I want us to get this warning. I don't want to put a blanket of negativity over this, but I want us to see emerging from this text is a false conversion of a person who was baptized and followed Philip. Thirdly, as we conclude this sermon, I want us to look at one of the most heart-warming texts in all the book of Acts. I love the end of chapter 8. This gospel advances as a grassroots movement. I just love that. I love the fact that you have people who are not apostles, but they're, they're attempting to explain Christ, and there's conversions. I love that. It is discouraging, but it is true that with gospel advance, there are always false conversions. We have to make sure we're in the faith. By the way, that's what communion is partially for, is for us to examine ourselves, to see whether we're in the faith. The story of Simon is discouraging. People can be baptized and not converted. But the story to end this chapter is absolutely awesome. Out of northern Africa come some of the earliest, most profound Christian theologians. Cyprian, Tertullian, Augustine. And the man that we're going to meet at the end of this chapter is the first fruits of that. What was going on in Samaria seems to cast a shadow over Christianity. I mean, you have Stephen, but then you have people going out and conversions and and joy. But here's a false conversion. But then we have this incredible story. I need to summarize it. In verse 26, the angel of the Lord directs Philip to go south. In verse 29, it says that the Spirit speaks to Philip. What's the difference? You have the angel of the Lord and you have the Spirit. I cannot say with any kind of 
of, of dogmatism that I can give a clear explanation of that except to say this is a really important direction being given to Philip. Is the angel of the Lord the Spirit? Is it the same person? All I know is that there is emphasis given to Philip at this time where he should go and what he should do, and the text is drawing this important attention to the importance of this mission. In verse 27, it says, He rose and went, and here's what he finds. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch. Note all the detail given with this man. Very important detail. An Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace. That was a name like Pharaoh. Queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now let's break all that down and pull it apart. This man is a Gentile. He is a black African man. He serves the queen of Ethiopia. He is over all of her treasure, which would have been a significant position to hold. For him to travel from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, if my calculations are correct, is about 500 miles via a chariot, which doesn't seem like a big deal to us because we can move wherever we want in pretty quick time. How many days this took, I do not know, but a thousand mile round trip journey for him to move away from this key post of treasure certainly would have threatened his position. Something is pulling at this man's heart. He is a eunuch. Don't want to let this go by. It's a very important part of the text, which I'll show you in a moment. This man, in order for him to serve at that level, would have had to give up at a great price having a family of his own. He is racially different. He is sexually altered. He is from Ethiopia, which at the time would have been the outermost part of the earth to the known people that uh, were living at that time. The title of this message is The Gospel to Outsiders. And so here's what God does. He takes these people in Jerusalem. He scatters them. And then he puts Philip on a path to reach a guy who lives at the outermost edge of the earth. All in one chapter. This is truly the gospel to outsiders. A lot is being said now about bridging racial divides, racial reconciliation. Can I say very succinctly here and very simply here, God is concerned about that too. For we have passage, a passage here, a chapter here, and we have a particular part of the chapter where God has to tell Philip, note in verse 29, go over and join this chariot. Now you think about that. I don't know how fast chariots move. How do, I mean, how fast? I didn't Google that. You could probably figure it out. Maybe 25 miles an hour, maybe 35 miles an hour. I don't know. Philip don't have no chariot. So here he is. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, like a, it's like almost like a cartoon scene. The guy's in the chariot reading, and he looks over. Here's a guy running <laughs> who just casually says to him, What are you reading? Do you know what you're reading? 
God is concerned about bridging racial divides. And here is a passage of Scripture where God is sending a person as different from Philip as he could possibly be. Racially, sexually, geographically, this man is different. I mentioned before that this man is going 500 miles away from home. Think about it. Let's stop and think. 500 miles away from home, risking perhaps his own position because he's to guard the treasure. I mean, think about it. If you're in Ethiopia or surrounding nation and you hear the guy that's in charge of guarding the treasure is gone, what a perfect opportunity to attack Ethiopia. So I'm just assuming that him leaving the area would have been a big, big deal. He goes 500 miles away. He is racially different But because of his eunuch status, he is denied entrance in the temple. He can't even go in. According to Deuteronomy 23.1, he would have been denied, quote, entrance into the assembly of the Lord. So he can't even go in. He purchases a scroll, which have been a very rare treasure at the time, and it happens to be a scroll of Isaiah. Here's what he's reading in verse 32. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now I have to summarize this quickly. I believe what this man was reading mirrored what he felt in his own heart. His own justice was denied him. He was cut off from having a family. He was serving another person. He willingly did that. And now he's reading and seeing that there's somebody else who was humiliated. There's somebody else who was denied his generation. Here is a person who seems to be like him. And so when Philip asks him, do you know what you're reading? Immediately he says back, is this the prophet or is this someone else? The eunuch didn't say this, but I can imagine him saying, I'd like to meet this person. Oh, and Philip, and Philip has an awesome opportunity. And Philip opened his mouth in verse 35, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. What a great phrase that is. What a great verse that is. Here's what's amazing about this, folks. I don't know, we're not told, but if he had a scroll, and it wouldn't have been divided into chapters, it would have just been one continuous writing at the time that he had it. But in our Bibles, Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 56 are not far from each other. These words literally could have been, as he opened the scroll, just a mere few inches to the right or to the left of his reading. Isaiah 56 and verse 3 says this, and I have to believe somehow Philip brought these words in. 
Isaiah 56 and verse 3 says, Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I have to believe that this Ethiopian man was searching. I mean, we can conclude that definitively. You wouldn't take that trip if you weren't searching for something. You wouldn't venture into hostile enemy territory as a racially different, sexually different, geographically different person, be denied entrance into the temple, make your way back if you weren't searching for something and he's reading a scroll that he purchased at great cost and he's reading right on a passage that talks about someone that seems to mirror some feelings he's had about his own life and within that passage, just a few verses later, he finds out that even a eunuch can have hope of a future generation if he knows this God. Man. As the story goes on in Isaiah or Acts chapter 8, this man trusts Christ, he's baptized, he goes back home, and that's all we know. There was an anonymous hymn written in 1904 that puts it this way. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. If you're a Christian today, it's because you were found. Now, we would describe it as I found Christ or I decided to trust Christ, but you were found before that. So let me ask you, is there a tugging on your heart today? Is there an interest in these things, these things being Christian things, Christ himself? Is that of interest to you today, those of you on live stream? Because if that tugging, if that pulling is on your heart, that's God saying He wants you to repent of that sin and trust His Son Jesus to save you from that sin. And by the way, folks, that's the message that we have on these feet and in these mouths, however feeble they may be, if you're a Christian, to take to this world, to take to your neighborhood. And you know, the truth is, it's time for some of us to get jolted out of our little bubbles, our little Christian bubbles. For some of you, your little Christian school bubbles. I mean, we have Christian schools, we have Christian mechanics, we have Christian doctors. We go to places that are, we go to the cashier that's the Christian. For some of us, we hardly know, we don't know people who are not Christians. It's time for some of us to get jolted out of those bubbles and recognize there are people just like this Ethiopian eunuch who may be incredibly different from, you, from who you are. But you know, this gospel isn't for people who just talk and act like us. This gospel isn't for people who just vote like us. This gospel isn't for people who eat the foods we like. This gospel isn't for people who just like the teams we like. This gospel transcends all of that because Christ died for the entire world and loves the world that much that there are people right now 
just like this Ethiopian eunuch who have that pull on their hearts and all they need is somebody to open their mouth and ask a question and to give the gospel. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for a text of scripture that jolts us out of our world and brings us to a place, Samaria, into this desert place where this man is in a chariot who's so different, and yet you specifically are delivering scriptures to him so that he might have hope. Lord, I pray that there would be people today who may be questioning their own conversion. Maybe they're like Simon. There was some reason they came to Christ, or they believe they came to Christ, but they are not genuinely converted. Father, I pray they would find the true Jesus today and true motive. And God, as we leave, help us to have sensitive hearts like Philip to to sense the nudges of the Spirit to whom we should speak, to open our mouth, knowing that while I believe I found you, truly indeed you found me. And you are still finding people today. And for that, we praise you. And one day we know that around your throne will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful week being sensitive to the Spirit of God being used of Him. It's a grassroots movement. That's us.